This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to the Mom in Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I'm very honored to welcome on Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody. She is going to be sharing information with us regarding the new postpartum depression medication with the brand name of Zerzuve or Zoranolone, which was recently approved by the FDA. This is the first pill for postpartum depression, which is different from the IV infusion Brexanolone for postpartum depression, which was approved in 2019. She's going to share with us what to know, what we don't know, and how fantastic it is to have another tool in the toolbox for treating postpartum depression. Dr. Samantha Meltzer Brody, MD, MPH, is the Asad Maimandi Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is an internationally recognized reproductive psychiatrist and clinician scientist who also directs the UNC Center for Women's Mood Disorders. Her work has focused on developing a comprehensive, integrated clinical and research program in women's mood disorders across the reproductive life cycle. She investigates the epidemiologic and biological predictors of perinatal depression, including genetic, neurosteroid, and other neuroendocrine biomarkers, as well as the impact of adverse life events. I'm really happy to have this conversation with Dr. Meltzer Brody so soon after the medication was approved by the FDA because there are so many questions that people have. And I think it's really useful just to know what we know so that we can also stay ahead of any questions, misinformation, or worries that people might have about medication. And just know that with any new medication like this, certainly it's going to bring up a lot of questions for people. So I'm happy to have her on and answer the questions that I know some of you are already having. So let's welcome Dr. Meltzer Brody. Welcome Dr. Meltzer Brody. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to come on and explain to us about this new medication for postpartum depression. 
It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Sure. So the new medication that was approved by the FDA last week is called Zoranolone. Mm-hmm. It is a positive allosteric modulator of GABA. It is very much similar to Brexanolone, mm-hmm. which was approved in 2019 as an IV formulation to treat postpartum depression. Brexanolone is a proprietary formulation of allopregnanolone. Zoranolone is modified a bit to make it more stable as an oral drug. So it is not just an oral form of Brexanolone. It's a little bit different, but also a positive allosteric modulator of GABA. So GABA is the main neurotransmitter system involved. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. So for people who are listening, who are kind of new to those kinds of words, if like a, I guess a lay person's explanation of what, what that is and what that means. Right. So what's exciting about Zoranolone is that it is a treatment that is based on a hormonal hypothesis. And so we know during pregnancy that estrogen and progesterone in all pregnancies rise rapidly and Mm -hmm. they then fall quickly at the time of childbirth. That's normal physiology for anyone that's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And allopregnanolone is the uh, main metabolite of progesterone that crosses the blood-brain barrier Mm -hmm. um, called a neuroactive steroid. Neuroactive meaning impacts the brain and it's Mm -hmm. a steroid. And allopregnanolone has been studied for quite a while and has been was suspected of having powerful antidepressant effects and also anti-anxiety effects. Mm-hmm. And so brexanolone, which was developed as a form of allopregnanolone, it's a finicky compound and it was delivered in IV. And that's something that has been used. You have rapid onset of action. So that's the main thing that's really exciting about this class of drug is rapid onset of action. But an mm-hmm. IV drug is obviously not convenient. So mm-hmm. zoranolone... Right is an oral form. It is modified a bit. It's very similar to brexanolone, also a neuroactive steroid, Mm -hmm. and it's also rapidly acting. So this new drug is an oral drug. It's rapidly acting. You have onset of action beginning at day three in the clinical trials. It's given for a two-week period of time. Mm -hmm. And then the results were sustained out to day 45 in the clinical trials. So very promising. Right. And now we don't know what happens after day 45. And that will be something that will be an important area of study moving forward. But what we know now is that it is rapidly acting and it acts very quickly. And that is, I think, a huge innovation in treating depression and that it was effective in the majority of women in the studies that took it. That's fantastic news. And I know that when Brexanolone came out, it was very exciting. And also, you know, yes, there were a lot of barriers to that because of the IV administration. So having this pill form obviously makes it more accessible. And I want to get to some of the questions that I know people have about this medication in just a little bit. But if you could explain a little bit of the difference between the medications that are used now and have been used for some time for treating perinatal mood disorders like SSRIs and how, you know, that is a little or very different than this new medication. So they're completely different mechanisms of action. So the SSRIs were approved in the late 80s and early 90s and are effective antidepressants. They have a large body of evidence. They were never developed specifically for postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. Um, They are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, fluoxetine, which is Prozac, was the first one that was Mm -hmm. approved 
in the late 80s. And they have been studied. Um, in particular, there's been clinical trials, small studies that looked at the effect of sertraline or Zoloft on treating postpartum depression, and it is a helpful antidepressant. We have all used the SSRIs as mainstay for antidepressant treatment for decades. And they were revolutionary at the time when they were approved because you could use them and they were much safer in terms of side effects and risk of overdose. Mm -hmm. So the previous antidepressants that were commonly used, the tricyclics, and the MAOIs had significant side effects or right. had significant risk of potential overdose. And mm-hmm. so that was made them, you know, was a major downside, frankly, to people yeah. using them. The SSRIs had fewer side effects and were much safer to give. And actually, one of the things that's most remarkable is that the ability to have non-psychiatrists prescribe them, primary care doctors prescribe them, OBGYNs prescribe them, led to many more people receiving treatment for depression Mm -hmm. that required medication therapy or needed medication therapy. Mm -hmm. But they take four to six weeks to work or longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, For some people, they're not effective, a sizable number actually. And there are significant side effects, namely concerns about sexual dysfunction, potential with weight gain or other side effects, GI side effects that make them something that some people don't want to take. And so I think that my interest in being able to participate in clinical trials with a novel compound, that there was a need for innovation and a need for new tools in the toolbox. Yeah, Um, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And you can't have just sort of one class of drug that you hope that most people are going to respond to when we know that a significant portion are not. So- Mm -hmm. The allopregnanolone hypothesis, the hormonal hypothesis of postpartum depression has been compelling for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that is what led to the interest to begin studying allopregnanolone as a treatment for postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, brexanolone being a proprietary formulation, but an oral drug that's very, very similar, also a neuroactive steroid that acts on GABA. So if the SSRIs are impact the serotonin system. Mm-hmm. This new class of drugs, positive allosteric modulators of GABA, GABA-PAMs, impact the GABA system. They are different than benzodiazepines that also impact GABA. The new drugs, they hit both intra and extrasynaptic receptors, which is different than the benzodiazepines. And that's why you see a different mechanism of action. So the benzodiazepines are not antidepressants. Right. Those and are like the Xanax, Ativan. Valium, quick. yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. This class of drug has a different mechanism of action than that. Also GABAnergic, but different mechanism of action. And mm-hmm. they are clearly antidepressants. You also see the anxiolytic effect, the anti-anxiety effect, and the primary side effect is sedation, which would also be expected. So with alone one would expect that people will take it at night mm-hmm. or they go to bed. Mm-hmm. And the FDA approved it with a warning about sedation and certainly warning against driving at night. Now, most people you hope will take it before to go to bed and they're not going to be planning on driving. Right, right, and the right. degree of sedation can markedly vary depending <clears throat> on the individual. Right. So this is, a, you said, daily for two weeks of medication. Yes, it's been studied as being daily for two weeks. It's 15 days in the clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that, it was stopped and then patients were followed for um, 45 days of the clinical trial. 
Okay. So what do we know from the clinical trial in terms of how it impacts depression in the postpartum and results, I guess, or what has been seen from the studies in terms of how people are responding to it and and for how long, I guess, up until that 45-day mark? So in the two clinical trials that were done, the phase three clinical trials, the first one, the Robin study was published a few years ago in JAMA Psychiatry. And the second paper for the Skylark study was published last week in the American um, Journal of Psychiatry. And my terrific colleague, Dr. Christina Delingianides, is the first author on both. I'm the second mm-hmm. author. And she provided tremendous leadership throughout the clinical trials. In both studies, you see a high response rate of study participants that it was well-tolerated that the majority of women had responses. Um, you Both studies, you see significant onset of action and reduction in symptoms beginning at day three. And mm. then you see by the end of the first week, people generally have, have had marked response and or remission of symptoms that then persists at day 15 and then persists out to day 45. So Fantastic. that's what we know from the clinical trial data to date. Right. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Okay, so that's very promising news for sure. And you already listed some of the potential side effects. And you said just now that it was pretty well tolerated, even with the drowsiness. Yes. So the main side effects are um, sedation and sleepiness and dizziness. Those are the primary side effects that were observed in the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, people 
will need to monitor sleepiness levels. You know, some people are going to feel that more than others. You can have right. dose adjustments, but most people will be taking this at night. But certainly, if a mother's taking it and then needs to be caretaking for the baby at night during the course of treatment, you're certainly going to want to make sure, ideally, that you have someone else that can help you during that period of time. Right. So this is what I've already started to see in uh, you know social media and questions about, well, you know, what about a mom who needs to be up at night with the baby? And what about nursing? And what about cost? So I'd like to kind of walk through some of those questions about what's known now and what we still need to figure out with time. I can talk, I, certainly. And so I have no idea what will be done with the pricing of it. So that is a question for the pharmaceutical company. Mm. I'm not involved in that at all. Um, mm-hmm. For that matter, I had no idea what it was going to be named as its you know, commercial name. I know it is Zoranolone and before that it was Sage, you know, a Sage number. So I think that we will see how it's priced. I hope it will be priced in a way that will make it as accessible to the largest number of women that are interested in taking it. Mm-hmm. When anyone suffering with postpartum depression, you hope they have more supports and that for a two-week period of time when people are taking it, that they can have some help, whether that's family, friend, whoever Mm -hmm. that can help with care of the baby until someone's feeling better or until at least you know how someone's dealing with the sedation of the medication. So at least for a few days, you'd want to know how someone's reacting and figuring out how that goes. But, you know, in general, for someone that has postpartum depression that is in need of treatment with a medication, you are probably dealing with more moderate to severe symptoms. So mm-hmm. first-line treatment, as we know, that would be recommended for more mild, moderate symptoms is psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And so if someone is now considering taking or being prescribed an antidepressant of some kind, one imagines they're having more moderate to severe symptoms, and that's why mm-hmm. that's being prescribed. Or They didn't have access to psychotherapy for whatever reason Mm -hmm. um, or whatever patient preference may be. And so I think people have to make it a priority to take care of themselves and to get the support around them as needed to try and get some help during the time they're taking this medication. Again, it's shorter term, but also for someone that's starting any new medication and probably needing some extra sleep and support, it's a good idea to have that. Right. I mean, at this point, postpartum, who's not needing extra sleep and support? Everybody does. But to your point, like not everyone has uh, all of that access to all of the resources, but really getting what you can where you can is necessary, especially with potentially trying new medication like this. Some of the other questions I've seen and people's concerns are related to nursing and breastfeeding and what is known so far about the, I guess, quote unquote, safety of this medication for breastfeeding. Yeah. So we know that so far about there's about 1% of the drug is transmitted into breast milk Mm -hmm. and that you will certainly need to have more safety data over time. There's nothing at this point that makes it absolutely contraindicated. I think it's important to keep in mind that during pregnancy, you have extremely high levels of allopregnanolone naturally occurring during pregnancy. And so the baby has been bathed in that. You know, again, brexanolone, proprietary formulation of allopregnanolone and zoranolone is slightly modified, similar class of drug. So 
safety and data will be forthcoming, but there's nothing that's sort of absolutely contraindicated. It would need to be discussed. Mm-hmm. I think that every person needs to have a conversation. There's nothing in that we know right now that would make it absolutely contraindicated. Mm-hmm. Um, some people may want to, you know, pump and dump for a period of time if they really want to make sure there's no transmission at all. But it's a very small amount that we know that's transmitted into breast milk. Can you give like a, I guess, a percent comparison between, let's say, Zoloft, which is regularly prescribed as and thought of to be the, again, quote unquote, safest medication for nursing, the percentage that gets through breast milk to the percentage of Zoranolone, if that makes sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that the data certainly for Zoranolone is very new. Mm-hmm. And sertraline and Zoloft, particularly in lactation, has been around for decades. Yeah. So you're not going to get the same kind of comparison mm-hmm. at this time. We know that the data on sertraline Zoloft, generally at doses less than 100 milligrams, you have minimal transmission into breast milk. Mm-hmm. And I think that you'd want to look at wonderful resource like LactMed, mm-hmm. which will summarize all the sertraline data. Mm-hmm. For Zoranolone right now, we know that there's about 1% transmission into breast milk. Again, a very small amount. Very small, yeah. So I think, again, as more data comes out, and I really rely on independent sources like LactMed to review these things carefully and make assessments, that will be an important thing for everyone to consider. Mm -hmm. And so again, these are all very personal choices. And every person that's considering taking any medication has to do an assessment of risks, benefits, et cetera, to see whether something's a good choice or not. I certainly think that the rapid onset of action is going to be what I see as a game changer for people suffering. So when I'm seeing someone suffering tremendously and I'm thinking about starting an antidepressant treatment, something that could have rapid onset of action. And you ask most women, would you like something that can start working within three days? Or would you wait four to six weeks or longer as we try and titrate something up? That's going to be a personal decision that the individual will need to make. Right. To your point, I think what you were saying earlier about medication, obviously first line is support and therapy and then considering medication unless it's a personal preference. But in the study and what you know of it now, is the medication kind of intended for severe depression or is there are there any, what's the word, metrics, I guess, about how severe depression needs to be to consider this medication? At this point, what we know is the clinical trial data, mm-hmm. and that is the data at hand. So that was studied in, in women that had more moderate to severe depression based on Hamilton depression scores, mm-hmm. and that's where you see the effect. So that's the data we have now. I think that for everyone, a decision to take a medication would be on a major depressive episode that is markedly impairing mm-hmm. functioning. Right. So this is not meant to be for women with mild symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this would be people for whom they would say, I meet criteria for a major depressive episode in the postpartum period, mm-hmm. and it's causing significant impairment in functioning. And so what we know now is the clinical trial data, which was designed to be people that had, you know, certainly moderate to severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see the efficacy at this time. Great. Thank you for that. These are, you know, I'm thinking of the questions that are coming through that I'm seeing on social media and kind of wanting to 
get, you know, as close to the source as possible in terms of answering these questions, because it, as I'm sure you've seen, and this happens with everything is there starts, uh, tales sort of start to get spun around what this is and what it means and what it's going to cost. And I won't be able to nurse. And so it's good to know that so far so good. And also more needs to be known. Much more needs to be known. So I think anytime there's a new medication approved, what you know at that point is the clinical trial data that led to the FDA deciding to approve it. And Hmm. I have confidence that the FDA is going to do very careful assessment and review, particularly in a drug that is going to be indicated for a vulnerable population of, in this case, postpartum women. Right. I think every individual is going to do their own assessment. Mm -hmm. And there are people that are always going to be like, you know, what you might refer to as early adopters, right? Right. I'm going to be first to the gate. (laughs) If I have this or great, it's, you can, it's going to work within three days, sign me up. And then Mm -hmm. you have other people who are going to want, you know, much more data to be comfortable in things. And everyone is going to have to decide that. So what we know now has all been published, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in two phase three trials, and then certainly the phase two trial before that, but it's all out there and published for people to review. And then for people to have thoughtful discussions with, you know, their doctors around what is the best choice for them. I think that for some people, certainly pricing in whether their insurance will cover it or not is going to be a key differentiator. Right. And we don't know that at this point. And then, you know, people who are concerned about breast milk and any potential transmission of anything, again, this is something you take for two weeks. It's not something you're taking chronically. Those are decisions individuals have to make. And so all of that becomes very, very personal. And I think everyone needs to figure out what is the right path for them Mm -hmm. and make thoughtful discussions, the decisions in discussion with their doctors. Sure. Right. So also this medication is not studied in pregnancy and right now is not suggested during pregnancy. Nope, again, there's not, no data. These, right. There is no data. It's not been studied in pregnancy. And because it's, you know, based very similar to allopregnanolone, a hormonal treatment, I think that would be a whole different can of worms to study. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it has mm-hmm. only been studied in postpartum women. Mm-hmm. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. 
We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. How far out is this actually available to people? And if you know, well, I'll first ask that, where are we now in the process of this being available? I do not know. So that, again, as an investigator on the study, those are all questions for the sponsor of the clinical trials, the pharmaceutical company, they have publicly said they want it to be commercially available by the end of 2023. Hmm. So sometime between now and, you know, the end of this calendar year, December, it will be available. If we look and see how long it took from the time it was approved to the time that Brexanolin was commercially available, it was about three months. And so whether this will be available sooner or rather or later, I do not know, but they have said it would be available by the end of 2023. Mm -hmm. And do you know, I know this, there are several steps of approval. And while I know you're not the FDA, do you happen to know what hoops are being jumped through to get Um, this out? no, No, at this point, as an investigator, and an academic psychiatrist, I know what is in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So it has been approved by the FDA. And then the rest of it will be in terms of next steps will be, you'd have to contact the sponsor Sage Therapeutics to get that information. Mm -hmm. What do you think the significance is? And I guess this is in your seat, a psychiatrist. What do you think the benefit is for there to be a specifically named postpartum depression medication? I think it's incredible that this was studied specifically for postpartum depression with a specific focus on women's reproductive mental health. Mm-hmm. In general, there has not been enough investigation of any medication on the market in terms of how it impacts women. There's many drugs approved on the market that were not studied in women or all women of reproductive age were excluded because mm-hmm. of concerns about someone taking it while pregnant or during lactation. And so while the intent is that it would protect people, the reality then is you have a lot of drugs that actually weren't studied ever in reproductive age women and may be less effective, may work differently, may have different dosing. So I think it's tremendous step forward that there's been an investment in studying this for postpartum depression specifically, which Mm -hmm. you don't need to be convinced is a problem. Right, right. And as a psychiatrist, I'm really grateful to have a new tool in the toolbox. After my entire practice for decades, we've had really very limited tools in treating depression pharmacologically that have novel action. And I am a huge fan of rapidly acting antidepressants. When people are suffering and I'm sitting in front of them and certainly in postpartum depression where it's now an absolute crisis for mom and the family and you have the time sensitivity around attachment and bonding, it is painful to have to wait to something to kick in. And I think that rapidly acting in an antidepressant since from the time we did the first open label infusion with brexanolone and seeing people respond quickly within 24 hours, that was tremendous. Seeing the rapid onset of response in the clinical trials with seranolone, also really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, I hope the path forward, I mean, I hope we will see 
more and more drug discovery that leads to faster acting antidepressants so that we can change the paradigm on how people, whether it's postpartum women or everyone else, how we treat depression. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I have two questions in there. One, can you maybe speak to the difference between, I've heard people ask, well, what's the difference between just major depression and postpartum depression and why are they different? Well, that is a complex question. So (laughs) one of the things up for debate is, is postpartum depression different than a major depressive episode at any other time in a woman's life? And there is not any one definitive answer to that question. Mm -hmm. There are people that have had multiple recurrent episodes of depression And they also happen to be depressed in the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people that have been depressed for 20 years. And if you screen them only in the postpartum period, you will find out they're depressed. But it turns out they've been depressed for a long time. Mm -hmm. There are people that have no history of depression and become depressed in the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. So this drug was studied in women that had onset of depression that was proximal to childbirth, late third trimester or very soon after childbirth. And in that population, this drug was clinically effective and has rapid onset of action. So that's what we know so far. I mean, I believe that postpartum depression is many different things. I don't think there's one kind of postpartum depression. Right. Um, And I think there's people for whom it is likely to be this hormonal hypothesis likely plays a more prominent role than other things. But Mm -hmm. certainly if we think about many different disease states. There's not one flavor of it. And an example I commonly give is breast cancer. You can have one type of breast cancer that is very much hormonally influenced. Mm -hmm. Someone will have estrogen and progesterone positive receptors. You have someone that's hormone negative. That's a very different type of breast cancer. Mm. And I am certainly not a breast cancer doctor, Mm -hmm. but the treatment for someone that is hormone receptor positive or hormone receptor negative is quite different. And we know that 20, 30 years ago, everyone sort of got the same treatment and people had wildly different outcomes. Well, that's because we didn't have the specificity to understand that in the way we do now. And that specificity has allowed there to be much improved outcomes in how we treat breast cancer. My hope is that as we learn more, we will get much more specificity Mm -hmm. around and much more targeted treatments around how we treat postpartum depression and depression in general, that we will figure out what is the right treatment. And again, we're talking about people who you're talking about medication therapy. So you've already gotten to that point in the decision tree. We will get much more specific about who's going to be best suited for what. So if we even think about the brexanolone trials, the allopregnanolone trials, 70% of women had a positive response. With seranolone, it's a bit less than that, but still pretty close to that. Who are the 30% who didn't respond? Mm. Why is that? Right. Right. And so really trying to understand and get more specific, ultimately, it's going to come down to likely our biology and both our genetic signature from birth, our life events, if you will, our epigenetic modification of right. genes on and off the way other parts of our body work, other influences, mm-hmm. right. you know, all the psychological um, factors that contribute to all the social determinants of health that may influence any individual we will get hopefully much more specific about understanding that mm-hmm. and being able to tailor things. And then you start throwing in all the comorbidity, people that have you know significant trauma histories, people that have co-occurring addiction, people that right. have any number of things. 
it can get quite complicated. So I think that this is a step forward and I see this as a new tool in the toolbox, right? which I think is wonderful. Yeah. But in no way is this the cure-all for everything. And I know Mm -hmm. I think that there's been some concerns about that, which is, of course, silly because this is not going to be the cure-all for, you know, everything that ails uh, postpartum with women, this will be another tool in the toolbox. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're speaking specifically to that. I I imagine that some of the hope for a cure-all is because people are so desperate. Um, For one, as us on, you know, the people who are supporting really want to make sure people are getting better as quickly as possible. And for those of us who have suffered, we wish we hadn't suffered as, as long and as certainly anything new, I think. And that's, I, if I can say groundbreaking like this is going to come with that kind of hope and maybe even pressure. So yeah, it's good to temper that a little bit <laughs> with a touch of reality as well. I think that I understand the hope and the enthusiasm and I get it. And I think that What we know is the data to date are encouraging Mm -hmm. and the data to date were encouraging enough along with a review, a thoughtful review of efficacy and safety Mm. by the FDA to lead to approval. And that's the data we have now. And then anytime a brand new drug is approved, you get significantly more data you know, onward. But I do think that this will be an important new tool and it's going to work really well for some people and less well for others, which is what we saw in the clinical trials. And mm-hmm. we're going to learn a lot more about who those people are mm-hmm. and hopefully get much more specific and, and we can tailor treatments better as we get greater understanding. But we still have a long way to go. You know, right now there is not any one test you can do that would tell an individual, here's what's going to get you better and we can hang our hat on it. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, But we don't have that really for anything in medicine other than the closest you can get to it is to have, you know, culture and sensitivity for what antibiotics going to work best for a particular bug (laughs) and to match that around it. But it's really hard for anything, whether it's cancer or heart disease or whatever it may be, to say this is going to be the fix it for every single person that takes it and you will go forth and it will all be love and light after that. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily how it works for anything. Absolutely. Because you have a scene, I'm sure some medications come out during your time in psychiatry. Do you think this will encourage more trials, more what have you seen, I guess, in terms of, or what do you hope for anyways? Well, my hope is that because this is a new mechanism of action, again, a GABA PAM, um, a positive allosteric modulator of GABA, that it's going to spur on more innovation, both in that area mm-hmm. and also other research into novel treatments for depression. That we have really been stuck for a long time pharmacologically, mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. in the serotonin hypothesis. Right. You have you know, a a number of drugs that are a little bit different here and there. You have bupropion, Wellbutrin, which is more dopaminergic. But if you look at where we've been, you know, we had the MAOIs, you have the tricyclics, and then you had the SSRIs or some combination Mm -hmm. of of mix and match of those. So I think that the hope is that this will spur on additional innovation and that we will see a renewed investment in determining other forms of treatment. And I think also renewal 
an ongoing commitment to further understanding what are the underlying causes of major depression. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a lot of different things. And that we understand the underlying pathophysiology better. We understand the biomarker signature better. We understand the intersection between our life events, our social determinants of health, our biology, Mm -hmm. and that we get better at treating people into both response and remission. Absolutely. So that we ultimately decrease suffering. I'm humbled by the fact that far too many people still die of suicide. Far too many people. Most women with postpartum depression are not treated to remission. And I think to me, that's the bottom line. Most women in this country don't receive adequate treatment and they are not treated to remission who suffer from postpartum depression with tragic consequences. Absolutely. And so people can, you know, get really worried about one particular aspect or another, but we need innovation mm-hmm. and we are not always good at embracing innovation. There's mm-hmm. always a lot of fear, which is important. You don't just rush out for what's any right. shiny new thing. But I think having a sort of a good balance of saying this is potentially a great new tool in the toolbox and then also, and we need to see, you know, what additional data is revealed, you know, but we need innovation in what we do to help decrease suffering. Thank you, Dr. Meltzer Brody, for coming on and sharing all this information. I know it's going to help so many people who not only help seekers, but also people who are providing support to, to have this resource, to be able to understand this a bit more and have a what I really appreciate about what you're saying is this like tempered approach (laughs) that it's a tool in the toolbox. And just thank you so much for your time and your expertise and all that you do for the reproductive psychiatry world. Well, right back at you. It's a pleasure to get to talk with you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This interview was so informative and I'm really glad to have a little bit more information and hear really directly from the people who are closely involved in these clinical trials and who understand the limitations of what we can know at this point so that we can have our questions answered. And the more information we can have at this point, the better. So please do share this episode as far and as wide as possible. There are so many people who have questions about this, and I know that this information can be supportive. For any of you out there who are needing more support during the postpartum period, I do offer quite a few online courses that are on demand, really easy to move through at your own pace. And you can find them at wellmindperinatal.com slash courses. In particular, there's one course that helps you walk through some of the perinatal mental health conditions that could come up during this time for you to help you decipher what might be going on and how you can seek additional support. Thank you so much for being with us until next time. Please find the mom and mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. 
My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.